Well, today is a historic day in the life of Wayside Chapel as we're launching a new multi-site at Stone Oak. And what I want to do this morning is welcome those of you who are worshiping with us at 1300 Evans Road uh, there in Stone Oak this morning. As, as we talk about this today, it's an exciting opportunity that God has given us to share his word in new and exciting ways through this multi-site campus. As we've been going through this series in the book of Acts, you know that what we've seen is how God birthed the church and the different ways that God used his people to spread the gospel. And today what we're going to do is continue looking at that, but I want to look at the story of the beginning of the church on a micro level and to look at how God uh, birthed Wayside Chapel and what it is that God calls us to do as his people. If you're in your Bibles and you're open to the book of Acts where we've been over the last several months, uh, just turn to the right and uh, turn to the book of Colossians. You're going to pass Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then we're going to come to the book of Colossians where I want us to look at chapter 4. In Colossians 4, 2 through 6, this is what we read. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God may open up a door of a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been in prison in order that I may make it clear in the way that I ought to speak conduct yourselves with wisdom toward others making the most of the opportunity now if you remember last week we left off in Acts 23 we saw that Paul was in prison Paul had been taken to Caesarea where he was in the prison where the Praetorium Guard was overseeing him. These were the elite soldiers who oversaw the royal dungeon. And as we look at Colossians here, we see that Paul is calling on the people in that church to pray. And Paul doesn't ask that they pray that the prison doors would be open and Paul would be released. Rather, he prays that there would be doors of opportunity open to the gospel. If you were the Apostle Paul, which would you be more concerned with? getting out of prison or getting the gospel out what we see is that Paul was one who was more concerned with being uh, faithful than being free and we know that Paul was faithful because as you look at Philippians chapter 1 there Paul tells us in Philippians 1 12 through 14 he says now I want you to know brethren that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment for the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. What could have been a roadblock for Paul in the gospel becomes a bridge. Paul says that, that looked, what looked like a, a hindrance to the gospel going forth actually becomes a way that the gospel is able to go forth. He says, I, I now have opportunities to share God's word in places that, that I couldn't go before. There are fellow prisoners. There are the, the elite guards that I'm witnessing to, and ultimately he'll be in the royal palace itself witnessing to the royal family. And we see that it also resulted in others being more active in sharing their faith. As we open this new Stone Oak campus, uh, the advancements in technology, things like the cameras and the, the internet and the ability to, to have a message that is being preached live here, being seen at, at another location, in the past would have been a hindrance. Uh, those things weren't in place. But we live not only in a day with advancements in technology, but we also live in a day where people are used to staring at a screen and, and forgetting that they're looking at a screen. I know I'm not supposed to remind you you're looking at a screen at Stone Oak, but, 
these are things that are opportunities, and it opens up opportunities for all of us to be more involved as well. Because those that are at Stone Oak have the opportunity to invite friends and neighbors and coworkers and others in that community that may see it as a hindrance to drive here to the 410 location, but now it's right around the corner. And it's an opportunity for us who are here at the 410 campus because it opens up more seats, more opportunities for us, room in the worship center, room in the classrooms, room in the parking lot, so that we can bring more people here to hear the good news of the gospel. In verses 2 through 3, Paul makes clear that he says we're, we have to pray for open doors. As you read through the New Testament, you see that this is a favorite picture of what the gospel is, is to be. It's an opening of doors for the good news to go out. We find that in 1 Corinthians 16, 8 through 9, where Paul says, But I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service is open to me, and there are many adversaries. He says there are problems, and yet there's opportunities. 2 Corinthians 2.12 says, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, a door was opened to me in the Lord. Acts 14.27 said, And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all that had God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And I love what we read in Revelation 3.8. There is Jesus who's speaking to the church at Philadelphia. He says, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. He says to that church there, you have a little power. He's reminding them that what you do is not based upon your ability, your resources, your uh, blood, sweat, and tears. He says it's based upon uh, ultimately what I do. The Bible is very clear that God is the one who draws all men and women to himself. The Bible is clear that everything we do is dependent upon the power of God. As a church, as Wayside Chapel, this opportunity that we have in Stone Oak is not based upon how big we are, how many resources we have, what we can do. It's based upon the power of God. As we've gone all through the book of Acts, we've seen God make very clear that we've been given the gift not just of eternal life, but the gift of God's power and presence how the Holy Spirit is resident within us, how he is the one that is at work spreading the good news of the gospel. As we've looked at this, as we've gone through the book of Acts, we've seen how God began his work there in the area of Jerusalem and how it spread all throughout the region of the Middle East. And then it crossed over uh, those barriers of water as it went into Macedonia and Greece and the various areas. And as we're looking at the history of the church and the spread of the gospel, uh, our church is tied all the way back to what God did 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. But as we're picking up the story of Wayside in particular, I want to fast forward to about 200 years ago. Because what happened 200 years ago is the gospel had moved into this area of the Scandinavian countries. As you think of Norway and Sweden, this is, this is really where the direct tie of the roots of Wayside Chapel comes from. Because around the 1800s, there were believers there that immigrated from uh, Norway and Scandinavia, and they came into the, the Midwestern part of the United States. They came into this area uh, of Minnesota, uh, up in the area to the north there, and, and this was a place that they began to plant churches all throughout the United States. 
There was the, the Scandinavian Evangelical Free Church that was planted. There was the, the Norwegian, Swedish, Danish bo bodies of churches that were planted. These were all a uh, loose configuration of believers who ultimately came together. They merged to form the Evangelical Free Church of America. And this, uh, the headquarters for, for that denomination of which we're a part of is there in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And so those who were up in this area eventually spread the gospel down. Now, you hear that word, evangelical free church, and some of you may be thinking, Roger, I didn't even know we belong to a denomination. Well, the word evangelical comes from the Greek word euangelion, and euangelion is just a, a fancy word that says, we as Christians believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God in the original autographs. We believe this is our authority. This is what God has revealed to us. And as you read the Bible, what it reveals about the gospel, that word euangelion literally means the good news. That's what the gospel is. When you hear people talk about the gospel, you're literally talking about the good news. And what God reveals to us is that we are all sinners. As men and women, we are fallen. We are separated from God by our sin. And we can't get to God by being good enough, by working hard enough. But what happened is God came to us. And he took our place as he went to the cross and Jesus paid the penalty of death that we owed. He became the substitutionary sacrifice in order to take away the penalty of sin and death. And that's what we as a church, we as a denomination say, we believe that the only thing we have to share that is worth sharing is the good news of the gospel. That's why we are the evangelical uh, free church. Now free, I have people sometimes who say, Roger, I don't understand I thought we were a church free of the gospel, but I hear you talk about the gospel all the time. Well, that word free doesn't mean that we're, we're staying away from the gospel. What that word means is that we are, a, a, although we're a part of a, about 1,500 churches in our country, we are an independent church. We are autonomous in the sense that we as a congregation call a board of elders. These are our, our appointed leaders. We're not directed by a national hierarchy that tells us how to do church and how to impact our community. We, we are an independent, autonomous church. And then you know what the word church means. It's not this building. It's not the building at Stone Oak. It's the body of believers that are gathered together. And obviously, we're not in Sweden and Norway anymore, so we're the Church of America. And so that's where this, this name comes from that we're a part of. Now, as we look at what does a national leadership do, if we're an independent church, why do we bother being a part of this uh, grouping of 1,500 other churches in our country? And the reason for that is we're able to pool resources, we're able to learn best practices, we're able to have a partnership that impacts not only our nation but the world. And back in the 1800s, as these believers came into this area of the Midwest, uh, and as they were establishing around the 1950s works up in this area that we know called Texas, they were sending people down here to be missional. And our direct tie comes through Kennedy. If you go to uh, Kennedy's, many of you have been there, it's southeast of San Antonio, this is where our path came from. As brothers and sisters in Christ from the Midwest wanted to reach down into Texas, they uh, had a church work down in Kennedy. And our first, our, they, they sent a pastor, the district sent a pastor day, down there by the name of Reverend Ward Bonnell. And he was uh, working at the Kennedy Church halftime. But you see that arrow on the southern part of San Antonio, and they, they wanted to plant a work in San Antonio. 
And so this pastor was part-time in Kennedy and part-time in San Antonio. And at the time, uh, they bought a, a parsonage, a house on Ada Street down in South San Antonio in 1947. And that parsonage would be the place where they would begin to hold Bible studies and they would begin to uh, try to establish a church here in San Antonio. They uh, purchased an adjacent lot where they had visions and plans of building a, a 20 by 20 building to be a chapel where church services would be held. And on November 18th in 1948, uh, the district received a $2,500 loan from the headquarters in Minneapolis. And on December 2nd, they bought a barracks building uh, down at Camp Swift. And what they did is they went in and they tore down the old barracks building and they brought the wood from that to be used to build this first church that would be there on the south side of San Antonio. And those of you who are in Stone Oak this morning, you're looking up at that front wall and it's not finished yet. You're saying, what are those wood slats on the wall that you see there? Well, by next week, you're going to see reclaimed barn wood that's going to go across those slats. And not only is that going to put a, uh, give a, a wonderful backdrop for worship, but it's also going to serve as a kind of a tie to our pioneering past. And as you look at the, the church uh, that was built there, those, those that were in that new building, it was dedicated on April 24th in 1949. Uh, we had a denominational paper that was called the Beacon. And this is what was recorded in the beacon. It said, San Antonio is a city with teeming thousands. Remember, this is back in the 1940s. Now we're well over a million. San Antonio is a city with teeming thousands of a mixed populace. And a new church is located in the midst of a district just opened up with literally thousands of new homes all around it and more under construction. The hundreds of children without any Sunday school with their unsaved parents constitute the working material by which we hope by God's grace and help to lay the foundation for a great church in this humming community. You know, isn't that a beautiful description of what the Stone Oak area looks like today? There's a, a humming community with thousands of homes around it, and there are many people in that community that don't yet have a church home. There are people there that are, have, have not yet connected to a church, and that's part of the vision that we as Wayside Chapel 410 have, to send a body, a pioneering body, to plant this new campus and to reach into that community. Our church was founded in San Antonio as a missions church, and today we continue that heritage as a missions church. Now, those that were uh, part of the original church plant there in San Antonio, when they started, they didn't have a name and they didn't have a body. It was just a parsonage. They're on Ada Street. And in 1950, in October of 1950, they solved both of those problems because Fairview Evangelical Free Church was incorporated. Fairview was a street adjacent to where uh, the property and the house uh, were located. And they started in 1950 with a charter membership of 16 adults, 16 people. I want to show you a picture of the church that was later built there. It's a church that's still located there. You can go uh, there to Ada and Pine Street and see this building. That was Fairview Evangelical Free Church, which is the mothership that planted Wayside Chapel. And we'll come to that part of our history. Uh, Fairview Evangelical Free Church is now called El Camino. El Camino is the Spanish uh, meaning for the way. And that church had a Spanish-speaking congregation meeting in it over the years, and ultimately the Spanish congregation uh, grew larger than the original body. 
and they transitioned and uh, gave the property to El Camino. And they are still pointing Jesus Christ, who says in John, pointing people to Jesus Christ, who says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So our mother church is now a sister church that we as Wayside Chapel help support uh, through personnel and uh, helping them in various ways. And so this is an evangelical free church still on the south side of our city impacting the community. Now, as Fairview was being established, God was bringing people to himself. And on October 7th of 1958, uh, this was reported by the denominational paper. The largest number of people ever to crowd Fairview since its dedication attended with 107 in enrollment and an average attendance of 75 on Sunday. So Fairview was still a small and struggling congregation. But even at that time, that pioneering spirit was evident as they had dreams of expansion. And the church paper was called the Fairview Footnotes. And on October 3, 1958, they had this in the paper. We're still confident the Lord will give us a church on the north side of town, October 1958. And so this vision uh, is what birthed Wayside Chapel. It's what birthed uh, our, our local body, our congregation. And as you can see in this picture, this is where Wayside Chapel has come from. Uh, there's our original building, a little chapel. And if you've ever wondered why we're called Wayside, just as Fairview took its name from an adjacent street, there at Wayside in Vance Jackson is where this congregation was located. That's why we're called Wayside Chapel. And so we began on August 8, 1960, with a charter membership of 40 people. Now, Wayside Chapel uh, began when a group from Fairview Evangelical Free Church merged with a, a, a local independent Baptist church called Vance Jackson Baptist Church. So some of you who come from a Baptist background, uh, welcome home. We have Baptist in our blood as well. And so uh, these two groups of believers said, we want to come together and we want to impact the community on the north side of San Antonio. Uh, I'll remind you that this congregation, our sanctuary that we're sitting in right here is actually located in Castle Hills, which those of you who are longtime San Antonians know that the the highway right outside our door, 410, was the outer loop of San Antonio. This was the country. And so remember, this was a pioneering work that was headed north in our city. And of those official in August 8th of 1960, there were 40 people that were listed as charter members. And three of those original charter members still attend Wayside to this day. George and Juanita Christensen, who usually sit in the back row, they're not here today. And Everett DeWolf, who usually sits here, one of his daughters, Susan Butcher, is, is here this morning. Everett's 100 years old, so he's not with us in attendance, and George and Juanita are usually here. So we still have these uh, ties to our beginning, faithful men and women who began Wayside that are still a part of us. Well, Wayside Chapel was like the Kennedy Church, because just as they shared a pastor with Kennedy in Fairview, when Fairview planted Wayside, we had a pastor named Warren Bathke who was uh, driving between the two churches. I'm thankful for the technology of cameras and video so I don't have to jump in my car and drive to Stone Oak and then drive back here now. So Warren was going between the two churches and preaching. And in August of 1961, Warren Bathke uh, was called to go down to Corpus Christi to pastor there. And so both churches were now without a pastor. 
And at that time, they decided to each call their own pastor. And so Wayside's first full-time pastor was Warren Weeder. And those of you who were here six years ago when we celebrated our 50th anniversary, remember that Warren and his wife Lois were here with us. So our original pastor uh, of Wayside was here. Now, over the years, there were several other pastors. There were seasons of growth and decline. And another part of our history that we still have ties to is uh, one season of growth came under the Reverend Aubrey McGann. And Aubrey McGann was an evangelist in Jamaica. And he had spoken at Wayside a couple of times. And Wayside called this evangelist for Jamaica to come to Wayside. And Ruth Costas, who usually sits in the back, there she is. She's hiding. Ruth is uh, part of that family, and you know Eleanor Nuttall-Reed. She is part of that family as well. And so uh, Reverend McGann was one of our pastors, and we had a season of growth under his ministry. Uh, He said, uh, Reverend McGann said, we do not want to be predominantly evangelistic with little Bible teaching, nor do we want to be predominantly a teaching church, which has lost its concern for personally reaching the lost for Christ. And that is a part of our DNA today. We as a church believe that we need to teach God's word expositionally. We need to go deep into the scriptures. And yet it's not about just filling our heads with knowledge. It's not about sit soaking and souring as you hear me tell you. It's about taking what we've filled our minds with and like a sponge that has soaked that up to go and squeeze it out uh, as we share the good news of the gospel. And so this part of Wayside Chapel uh, is still who we are. It's in our DNA We teach the Bible, and yet we also want to reach out as a church locally and globally as we are involved in missions. Well, after uh, the Reverend McGann, this was a great season of growth, and in 1969, they had to expand the chapel. They added a sanctuary that would seat 176 people. And after a period of time, Reverend McGann returned to the uh, field as an evangelist, and then we called the Reverend O.W. Johnson from Iowa to serve as our next pastor. And following uh, Reverend Johnson, uh, a pastor that many of you know and love, Steve and Connie Troxell came to Wayside Chapel. And Steve was our pastor for 34 years. Uh, Steve retired and I was called to Wayside in 2006. Now because Steve was here for 34 years, even though I've been here 10 years now, uh, many of you still refer to me as the new guy. And... uh, (laughs) And so over the years, God has blessed our body with, with continued growth. And uh, you know that a part of our history has been missional and planting out. Uh, here's a map of the city that shows uh, where we have planted local congregations. There, there are 10 churches in the area of our city that we have been involved in directly planting or assisting in their plant. Two of those have happened in the, the 10 years that I've been here. And as we come to this day, we're starting another new church. And yet it's different because rather than sending it out as a standalone body, we are going to be one church in two locations. And we've talked in the past about the reasons for that, Uh, the the benefits that come with being a multi-site versus launching a smaller congregation that may struggle for a period of time. And so as we look at this history of our church, as we look at what we're doing as Wayside Chapel, this, this multi-site uh, is dependent upon its success for what we read here in Colossians 4.2. It says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. The Bible tells us that God is the one 
who draws all men and women to himself. It's not about having a pretty property. It's not about having a, a, a fun and engaging message. It's about God working in the hearts and the minds of men and women, preparing them and drawing them to himself through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so before we talk to somebody about God, we need to make sure that we're talking to God about that person. So many times we, we go in and, and we wonder why are we not successful in sharing the gospel with a coworker, a friend, a neighbor, even a stranger we might meet on the street. But men and women, we need to be in prayer and talking to God daily about those opportunities. Before we open our mouth, we need to ask God to open up the opportunity, the heart of the person that we're going to share the good news with. Ask God to be the one who is drawing them. Now, as we do that, we don't just sit back and pray that God would, would bring somebody. He calls on us to go out and be a part of that process as well. There's an old pastor in Georgia who used to say, when a farmer prays for a corn crop, God expects him to say amen with a hoe. And that's what God calls on us to do. We, we are an integral part of that, that planting process, but God is the one who brings the harvest. Now, if you're praying for God to open doors for opportunity in evangelism, don't forget to seize them when they come along. Paul tells us here to make the most of the opportunity. The Greek word he uses here is ex agorazo. Ex agorazo. And what it literally means, it was used, it was a marketplace term that meant you would go in and you would buy something out of the marketplace. You would see something that you wanted and you would purchase it and it would be taken out of the market and was no longer available for sale to others. It was now yours. And this is something that, that speaks, the, the King James Version translates this as redeeming the time. And as a church, you know that for many years we were in prayer, saying, God, we believe you want us to move. Again, kind of part of our history, move into the north side of the city. And the reason for that is that 25% of our church was coming for the, from the northern area of our community. So we said we know that we have uh, a group of people that we can send as a missional body to be those missionaries into this part of our community that are already connected with neighbors and friends and others. And we were praying for years, and we were looking at properties, we were looking at opportunities, but then the right one never came along. And then when God presented this opportunity where another church, North Central Christian Church up in that area, was closing its doors at that location, uh, we said this is a, a, a good campus opportunity for us to move into and continue to be a lighthouse into that community where the Mormon temple is located where the Islamic center is located, as well as the many unchurched men and women. And so we echocarazoed that opportunity. We bought the land. We took it out of the market. We redeemed that opportunity that we had been praying for. And as we did so, we're doing it so that we can uh, buy men and women out of the marketplace of sin and death as well. When Jesus Christ came and he died on the cross to pay that penalty of death for our sins, what he did was he opened up, he bought us out of the marketplace through his blood. He purchased us at a high price. And that's what Wayside Chapel is doing up in the Stone Oak multi-site. As we share God's message of redemption, Paul told us to pray, to be prepared. And then he says in verse 4 that we need to be clear in how we communicate. There was a man who was teaching his wife to drive. 
And as he was sitting in the passenger seat, she was there kind of looking at all the, the dials and knobs. And I know what all this looks like because I'm teaching my 16-year-old daughter to drive right now. And, and what would it be like if, if as this man's wife or my daughter Sarah is staring at everything and I said, okay, turn the doohickey there and shift the thingamajig there and then push down on the doodad. Um, do you think, you look around, what are you talking about? See, the problem is I know what I'm talking about. I know what I want her to do, but all of that is confusing to somebody who doesn't know what we already know. And what happens sometimes is when we share the gospel, uh, we're kind of like that, aren't we? You see, we already know things, so we assume that other people know what we know. But what God says and what Paul tells us is we need to be clear in how we communicate. Now, you've heard me share the gospel many times from the pulpit. Uh, people have jokingly said to me they've renamed the Roman road the Roger Road because, you know, I use all the verses out of Romans. And there are many other verses I, I share when I share the gospel. But one of the reasons that I repeat uh, the Roman verses to you all the time is two reasons. One is that I want you to learn them. And over a period of repetition, many of you have learned those verses yourself just by hearing me say them over and over and over. And so what I'm doing is modeling for you and you're learning. And as you know those, you can then go and share those yourselves. The other reason I do that is there is not a Sunday that comes uh, here at Wayside Chapel that we don't have a plethora of new people that are among us. People who have never heard uh, me share the gospel, some possibly who have never heard the gospel. And what I found is there, there are certain illustrations, there are certain verses that work well. Now, again, it's not through the cleverness of the presentation. It's God who has to draw people to himself. But what I do is I take something I know that works, and I use that to present the gospel in a clear way. And you see, one of the, the areas of confusion in sharing the gospel with people is they think that works are necessary to be saved. And so I often start out by talking to somebody, uh, trying to discern where are they in the process. And I'll just ask the person directly, uh, if you were to die today, on a scale of 1 to 100%, how sure are you that you would go to heaven? And you'll have people answer that all kinds of ways. You know, well, I'm pretty sure I'm about this or I'm that. Or I'm and so you, you find out where is the person in their, their understanding of the gospel of grace. And then I'll ask them, when you get to the, you'll have people sometimes, oh, I'm going to heaven, I'm sure. Great. So when you get to the gate of heaven, and you're asked, why should God let you in? What would you say? And that's where you'll then hear people sometimes say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I've tried to do good things. I go to church. I put money in the offering plate. And the lists are resume. And again, it's important to hear what they're trusting in. Because what you find is many times you have to get the person lost before you have to get them saved. You have to help the person understand that what they're trusting in is not good enough to get them to God. And so what you do is you hold the mirror of God's word up to the person and you let it reveal to the person their need for a savior. And so as you do this, what I do is I take them to the Bible and I open it to the book of Romans. And in many cases, I put the Bible in their hand. Rather than reading it to them or quoting the verse, it's powerful to let a person hold the word of God and read it themselves. And you'll see them. Uh, I'll point at Romans 3.23, and I'll say, what does Romans 3.23 say? And they'll say, well, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I'll say, do you know what that means? 
And they'll say, well, you know, I, I, maybe. And I'll say, well, sin is an archery term. It was used originally, it's a Greek word, that was used by an archery judge as they would walk up to a target and they would grade it. And I say to the person, if I gave you 100 arrows and you were to shoot 100 arrows at the bullseye and 99 of them hit directly in the bullseye, but one of them was just outside that middle mark, what would you say? And they go, well, that's good shooting. I'd say, that's great shooting, but the problem is the archery judge would look at your target and say, you sinned. You literally missed the mark. It means you were not perfect. So I asked the person, have you been perfect your whole life? Have you never lied? Have you never cheated? Have you never even stolen a cookie out of the pantry? Well, you know, there was that time. And I said, well, what that means is you sinned. You were less than perfect. Now, some people, if they need a little more convincing, just take them to Romans 3.10. It says, there is none righteous, no, not one. And I had a man one time, well, I don't, I'm, okay, I'm a sinner. Yeah, you are. And so am I. And I say, and because of that, we have a problem. And I say, the problem is there's a penalty that goes with sin. So you flip over to Romans 6.23. And Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. And I stop them there as they're reading it out loud. And I say, wages, what are wages? And I say, that's what we earn. And I say, you see, the problem is many of us are trying to earn our way to God. We say, how good do I have to be, God? How much do I owe you? And we reach for our wallet or our purse and we say, what's it going to cost me? And what God says is put that away because you have a problem. As a sinner, the way you live your life is you don't earn your way to me. Instead, what you earn is death. And you explain the death is eternal separation from God. And so see, the person realizes they're a sinner and they're lost. And you say to them, now here's the good news of the gospel. And you keep reading Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I say to them, God offers you a gift. A free gift. And now sometimes if they need a little more clarification there, that's where you go in and you say, uh, maybe use this illustration of, hey, I got a gift for you. And so you take and, 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 and imagine I give you a, a box and it's wrapped up real pretty and it has a bow on it and, and the person opens it up and you go, wow, this is great. It's, it's something I've always wanted. I go, do you like it? Yeah, it's great. And I say, well, you know, I paid $50 for it, so could you give me a $50 bill? And the person looks at you kind of sideways like, well, well, then it's not a gift. And I say, you're right, it's not. If you pay for it, it's not a gift. And you see, what God says is he has a gift for us, a free gift. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is a great verse to bring in here. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. And so what I say to the person is, uh, we need to quit trying to earn our way to God. We need to quit trying to think we can be good enough. And as I'm sharing this with you, somebody may be sitting here this morning who is saying, you know, Roger, that describes me. I'm that man or woman who thought I was good enough to get to God by being good enough. But I see that I can't do it that way. I recognize that, yes, I am a sinner. I recognize that, yes, I have a problem because of my sin. I owe that penalty of death. So how do I get to God? How can I come to God? You remember John 14, 6 that I quoted earlier? Jesus Christ said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We can't come to God by being good enough, so God came to us 
It's why he left his throne in heaven and he took on flesh and blood. It's why God walked the earth with us. It's why he willingly went to the cross. It's why he stretched out his arms and he allowed himself to be crucified and to die. Why did God have to die on a cross? Because the wages of sin is death. There was a penalty owed for our sin, a penalty that had to be paid. And God, who was perfect and holy and never sinned, was the only one who could pay that penalty. And so he willingly went to the cross. He took my place and yours. He paid that penalty of death. It's why in John 19.30, as Jesus Christ died on the cross, he said, it is finished, is the way our English translations translate his last words there. The Greek word is tetelestai. It literally means paid in full. What was paid in full? The wages of sin was death. Jesus said, I've paid the penalty in full. My blood has washed away your sins. The book of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. The perfect Lamb of God, the one John the Baptist pointed to in John 1.29, said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world came. He came to take my place and yours. He went to the cross and he died there. So how do we receive that great gift of new life? You turn over to Romans 10.9 in the Bible that the person is holding and you let them read it. And it says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. And I asked the person, would you like to receive God's great gift this morning? Would you like to accept that gift of new life that God has for you? And if so, I tell them, it says that you need to confess that. There's nothing magic about a prayer, I tell the person, but it's your way of saying to God, God, I'm acknowledging I'm a sinner, and today I want to say to you, I'm a sinner, and I'm in need of you to be my Savior. And I'm turning from my sin into you today, accepting your death, Jesus, as the payment for my sin. And then you can lead that person in that prayer. You just simply have them acknowledge, God, I'm a sinner. I've fallen short of perfection, and because of that, I know I owe a penalty, a penalty called death. And I thank you, God, that you came and you took my place. You went to the cross and you shed your blood to wash away my sins. And today, Jesus, I turn from my sins unto you to be my Savior. Amen. And as a person prays that, they've accepted the gift. God has stamped, paid in full on their account, and they become a child of God, a brother or sister of yours, and a son or daughter of God's, and they're welcomed into the family. That's why Wayside Chapel is here today. Because we're a church of men and women, boys and girls who have realized we're sinners and we're fallen and we're far from God. And we found the good news of the gospel, the message of grace, and God has called us together to be those who share that good news. I want to close our time today with a, a modern day parable. It's called uh, the Life Saving Station. And it tells us on a dangerous sea coast there were shipwrecks that often occur. There was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was no more than a hut. And there was only one boat. But the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea with no thought for themselves. They went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to be associated with the station. And they gave their time and their money and their effort to support the work. New boats were bought, new crews were trained, the little life-saving sta station grew. 
Some of these new members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge for those who were saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for the members. And they decorated it beautifully because they used it as a sort of club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired a lifeboat crew to do the work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decoration. There was even a memorial lifeboat in the room where the club initiations were held. Now about this time, a large ship uh, sank off the coastline. And the, the hired crews went out, and, and they brought in boatloads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some of them were even foreigners. Now, the new building was in chaos as they, they cared for the people, and the property got dirty, and, and immediately the property committee said, something has to change. And they rigged up showers outside saying, well, before people can come in, they need to get cleaned up. And uh, they, they decided at the next meeting that, that maybe they should stop the life-saving activities altogether because they're unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Now, a small number of the members insisted that life-saving was their primary purpose and they wanted to continue it. They even pointed out, we're called a life-saving station. But this group was voted down and told if they wanted to save lives, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. And so they did. And the years went by, and that new station experienced the same changes that occurred at the old one, and it too evolved into a club. And yet a letter, another life-saving station was founded, and history continued to repeat itself. And if you visit that seacoast today, you'll find that there are a number of exclusive clubs all along the shoreline. And occasionally boats still sink, but unfortunately many of those people perish because nobody's going out to save them. That sad story describes what's happened to many churches, doesn't it? We have a motif. We're a life-saving station. We may even have a cross on the wall and say, you know, this is what we're about. And yet far too many churches or individual Christians have, have kind of lost the purpose of why we even exist and, and, and we've become more like a club. I'm thankful to say that at this point in 56 years in the history of Wayside Chapel that we are still a life-saving station. I don't say that to pat ourselves on the back. I say that to remind us that we've been handed the baton of faith by many faithful men and women in our past. And it's up to us today, whether it's here at the 410 campus or those who are out at Stone Oak, to guard against having these places become just another life-saving station and motif only. It needs to be a place where we wade out into the sea of humanity around us that's perishing. We need to be willing to let those that maybe don't look like us or act like us or understand like we do what the message of the gospel is, and we need to be those who go to rescue the perishing and bring them in. Remember that Romans 5.8 tells us God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Brothers and sisters, God took us like we were at our worst, far from him as sinners. He didn't say get cleaned up outside before you come in. He said come in and hear the good news of the gospel and have your life changed by that. And that's what we're called to do. We join me please as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you 
for the past faithfulness of your people. May we who are your people today carry that baton of faith forward. May we be those men and women, boys and girls, who take the message of grace. May we be willing to go out and wade into the, the sea of humanity that is around us that is lost and perishing. Father, may we recognize that as a church we've been called together to be a place to encourage, to equip, and support one another as believers. But Father, we're not to be keepers of the aquarium where we just kind of have a little club here, but we're to be fishers of men that were to go out into the marketplace and buy those off the marketplace of sin and death through the good news of the gospel. So, Father, would you send us out today as your people, as your messengers of grace into the communities around us, whether it's here or surrounding us in Castle Hills or up in the Stone Oak area. Father, thank you for entrusting us with the message of grace. May we be faithful to be your messengers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If as I shared the gospel earlier, you were praying that prayer or wanting to know more, you see prayer leaders here at the front, we would love to talk to you. Make sure you understand exactly what that message of grace is and to receive God's gift of new life for you. For the rest of us who are already believers in Christ, may we go out into our mission field today and share the good news of the gospel. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thank you.